This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we join Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus talks about his exodus with Moses and Elijah. Moshe and Eliyahu. We got a new thing, Brent. We've been talking at the end of episodes, but we know that people don't listen all the way to the end of episodes. 70% of people we can, we can bail track out these just like 30 seconds early. They don't like, to, they don't like our sign-off. We need to do something awesome with our sign-off and make them pay for it. Yeah, we're going to have to go all Marvel Cinematic Universe, put put the good stuff at the very end. Heck yeah. We already are, of course. They just don't know it. They've missed it this whole time. Um, but we have a new thing. We have a thing called the Bayma Messenger. It is a newsletter, if you will. I hate, a, I hate the common word newsletter. It's so much more than a newsletter. It's so much better than a newsletter. But it is a newsletter. It is a newsletter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're putting in there like stories from around the world. We got Baymaw groups all around the world. Why not tell some of their stories? Why not talk about where they're at and what's going on? Why not share some pictures of you all listening to us? That'd be fantastic. Why not share upcoming news, Brent Billings, of things that are happening, places that I'm going to be speaking, um, uh, opportunities to... What if we all started like... Here's a crazy idea. It's crazy. What if... We had people all around the country listening to a podcast, and we could actually do more than just listen to a podcast. What if we could like get together in like a region and like collect coats for kids in the winter? What if we could serve the homeless somewhere? What if we could actually not just learn about taking care of the alien orphan widow? What if we actually did it? That'd be sweet. So we could like arrange that with said newsletter. That'd be fantastic. We could talk about upcoming Israel trips. I get about three emails a week asking me about Israel trips, which is making me feel really good. Like my next Israel trips might just be full. That much I like. Um, But why not be able to send all that information out? And then, of course, what if we wanted to highlight something, anything? I don't know. But what if Brent and Marty wanted to like really, really, really highlight some idea? We're going to put that in there, too. We're going to have ways to contact us. We're going to have ways to give money to support our ministry. We're going to do all the goodies in a Bayma Messenger, the Bayma Messenger, the greatest newsletter you have ever received. <laughs> I was with you 100% until that very last line. <laughs> uh, I have high hopes. I'm talking this thing up. It's going to be great. It will be great. But it is a newsletter. Yes. And so, you need to sign up for it, though, because we need your email address. Yeah, that's right. Because um, I'm, not, I'm not taking it unless you give it to me. I have no other options. So sign up for that. We got a link in the show notes where you can uh, go to our website. You can also we're going to start posting some of that news on our website as well. You can also sign up for that uh, for that newsletter, the Baymont Messenger, and get that, and uh, we'll go from there. I like it. All right, let's get on with it because we have an ambitious goal today. We're going to go through all of seventeen, chapter seventeen of Matthew. All right, let's get started then. All right. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Okay, so we're talking about the transfiguration today, obviously. Um, this is a weird story. Like, uh, when you read the Gospels, almost every story you come across, there's some kind of like takeaway. You know what I mean? Like Jesus is teaching a point. There's obviously a, a lesson to be learned. There's this transformational principle. And this is one of those weird stories where it's just like, what do I? What am I supposed to do with this story? Just like know that it happened? Because this whole like Bema, this whole journey through Bema, the whole the whole Bema project has been uh, 
an adventure of learning that everything is there for a reason and a purpose, not just to tell me that it happened. So what is the point of this story? And I, I honestly, spoiler alert, at the end of this episode, I'm not going to have like a great resolution. I'm still kind of working on it. I have some ideas. I have more ideas than I used to years ago. Um, but this is kind of a weird story. Um, but let's, let's deal with a couple questions right off the bat. First of all, which mountain? Tradition has this mountain taking place, this, this story taking place on the mountain of Mount Tabor, Mount Tabor, um, T-A-B-O-R. And uh, that's the traditional location. Um, they choose that for a lot of reasons. Um, it says that it was six days later, and, and Mount Tabor is about six days journey away. Um, Mount Tabor is a high mountain, uh, fits the story. Um, yeah, there's some reasons to think it's Mount Tabor, but I, I, I disagree. As my rabbi taught me, I don't think it's Mount Tabor. I think the mountain is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon is the mountain that sits just behind Caesarea Philippi, which was the mountain in our last story. Like that was where the headwaters of the Jordan River, one of them comes flowing off of Mount Hermon. The Caesarea Philippi sits right at the base of Mount Hermon. Uh, Hermon, by the way, means holy mountain. It's Mount Mount Holiness, Mount the Holy Mount, the Holy Mountain, Mount Hermon. So, um, but it was six days later. So why six days later? I mean, it's not six days away. They're already there. They're literally at the base of Mount Hermon when Caesarea Philippi and the great confession of Peter happened. So why six days later, Brent? Would this have something to do with like a cleanliness thing? Uh, well, where, well, sometimes. I, mean, uh, I don't know. Because there are some things that... Yes. Like there's some things that are seven days unclean, but there are other things that are shorter amounts of time, right? Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yep. And we see that. We've talked about that before. When Jesus touches lepers outside of Jerusalem, he waits six days before he enters Jerusalem. Um, so that that's a good, like, immediate assumption. Um, why else? Is there something in the text <gasps> about six days? It could be in the text, which brings up, the, brings up my second question. Have we heard a story, Brent Billings? Let's see here. Let's talk about seven aspects of this story, okay? Number one, there's a high mountain. Number two, there are three people that are taken up the mountain with the leader. Because Peter, James, and John are headed up the mountain with Jesus, right? Uh, A cloud covers the mountain, we're told. We're told that there is glory uh, on the mountain and that a fig, the the leader's appearance has changed. We're we're told that glory settles, the Hebrew word is shekan, the the glory settles on the mountain. And this all happens after six days and God speaks. So seven items there. Seven items that happen in this story. Can you think of any other story, Brent, where that happened before? Well, wait a minute. I'm confused. Were you talking about uh, uh, Moses on the mountain uh, uh, getting the Ten Commandments? Excellent. So let's let's go back to Mount Sinai. Um, let's see here. There is there a is there a high mountain in Mount Sinai, Brent? Uh, I would think Mount Sinai is is a high mountain. Actually, verbatim, high mountain is in Mount Sinai. How about how about uh, do three people go up with the leader who would be Moses? Moses takes with him Aaron and Joshua and Hur up the mountain with him. Three people. Okay. How about number three? Uh, a cloud covers the mountain. Was there a cloud at Mount Sinai? Certainly. Absolutely. How about glory? Is the word glory on the mountain and is a figure's appearance changed? Yep, absolutely. Moses's radiant face from the glory that is on the mountain. And the glory we're told in, at Sinai, it, it shakan, it settles on the mountain. Um, we're also told in Sinai, if you go back and look at it, that this all happens after six days. And of course, God speaks. So this is without a doubt, as you're reading this story from a Jewish perspective with a Jewish ear, this is Jesus replaying the story 
of Mount Sinai, right? Um, these are the details shared in Moses' journey up Mount Sinai. So go ahead and keep, uh, go ahead and keep reading where you left off. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters. There one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Absolutely. Here's Peter jumping in, right? And we, this is where we, uh, this is where we take the opportunity to butcher, butcher Peter, dumb Peter, stupid Peter, always jumping in there and saying things, saying stupid things without thinking, stupid Peter. Can't believe how many times I've heard that, right? Lesson after lesson, sermon after sermon, we talk about how Peter, a bumbling idiot, doesn't know what to say, and so he just blurts out idiotic nonsense. But of course, maybe that's not at all what's happening here. Ironically, maybe Peter knows his text better than we do, because what happens after Sinai, Brent? What's the next thing that happens in the Exodus story? Uh, is it the golden calf? Well, that kind of happens in the middle. That's, okay, that's, all right. But what, what's the next big movement of the book of Exodus? They get to Lot Sinai. Uh, it's like they, they build the tabernacle. Oh, wait. So what does Peter want to do? Okay. He wants to build, build some shelters. He wants to build, and the literal word is, I tabernacles. Want to, I want to build some tabernacles. Yeah, yeah. Of course you do, Peter. It's what happens next in the story. Of course, we didn't pick any of that up because we never knew it was a retelling of Sinai in the first place. So here we are, like stupid Peter. I wonder if the reason why Peter stands at the pearly gates, not in the Bible, by the way, but I wonder if it's because he's just going to beat up like every pastor that made him look like an idiot. As they walk through, you get in, but you have to go five rounds with me first. Peter the bouncer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll build a tabernacle for you, punk. Um, yeah, no, yeah. So we we just butcher Peter here. Uh, and a lot of people assume that God like interrupts Peter and like chastises him because that's how we tell the story. Um, but yeah, in- you would think that Peter probably stops and thinks about this before he says this. It's like all this stuff is happening. They're going up the mountain. He's like, okay, we're going up a mountain. Like he's already, like things are already running through his head. He's six days removed from his terrible moment where he rebuked his own rabbi. Right. Like he's had some time to reflect on this and he's Correct. probably going to put a little bit of thought into whatever he does next. This, Absolutely. This is immediately following his other moment, right? Absolutely. And he's wanting to make, like, he's just wanting to nail this, right? And Peter, we've already shown that Peter is brilliant. He knows his Bible. He knows what's going on. He's at a high point, trying to recover from a low point. You're absolutely right. I think Peter's going to try to be, like, he's going to try to nail this just perfectly. And I know that the text, I know that in Luke, uh, there's this parenthetical statement about Peter doesn't know what he's saying. But A, it's a parenthetical statement. That feels like a later addition to a later manuscript to me. You don't have to agree with that. That's fine. That's fine. Don't agree with that. But there's also more than one way to read that. Not like, It doesn't have to be that Peter's blurting out idiotic nonsense. It could be that Peter doesn't even realize how good. I mean, I suggested that in the last podcast, that Peter didn't even realize when he said, you are the son of the living God. Like I suggested Peter might not have even known how good that quote was. And maybe that's the same thing going on here. Like he doesn't realize how good his, he doesn't even realize what he's saying. Like what he's saying is so sowed driven. Like there, there could be that possibility. So a lot of people assume that God like interrupts Peter and tries to chastise his loose tongue. But if you check your text, it's not at all what happens. Uh, Peter, God, God never addresses Peter at all, actually. God just kind of gets in on the action. Like, there's simply God's voice from the cloud. He doesn't even address Peter. Uh, the voice comes from the cloud and it says, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Many of us don't realize that God shows up and quotes all three parts of his book, which is one of the things that the 
rabbinic teaching, the legend at the time, nothing is written down and canonized, but the Midrash, if you will, said that one of the ways that we'll know that Messiah is here is that all three parts of Tanakh will testify about him. All three parts of Tanakh will testify about Messiah because they'll all work together. Now, what were the three parts of Tanakh, Brent? Uh, so Torah. Torah, T, T, Torah. Uh, the Nevahim. Nevahim, which was the? The writings. The, no, no prophets. prophets. Prophets, right? Okay, so Tanakh. Ketuvim, um, which is the writings. And, the, and Ketuvim, which is the writings. So Torah, Nevahim, Ketuvim. The books of Moses, the prophets, and the writings. Those three parts of the Hebrew scriptures. So God says, this is my son, whom I love, and with whom I am well pleased, pen which gospel you're reading. I didn't even read that one yet. Oh, you haven't? No. Well. It was the next verse. How dare I jump ahead? <laughs> well, because I think what you were referencing, I think this is this will be good. So, so Peter says, hey, I'm going to set up shelters, one for each of you. Love it. And then it says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said... And then what you said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, listen to him. Okay, so these these verses that God, uh, God, God's quoting three different parts of his book. First of all, this is my son. First thing that God says comes from Psalm 2. Go ahead and give us Psalm 2, Brent. Psalm 2, uh, verse 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. All right, Psalm 2, that's going to be which part of the Torah? That would be the Ketuvim. Ketuvim, so we got writings, okay? So God says, this is my son, that's Ketuvim. Whom I love, or in whom I am well pleased, depending on your gospel, um, go ahead and give us Isaiah 42. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. So we had Ketuvim. What is that one? That's the Nevahim. Nevahim. We got the prophets. We got the writings. We got the prophets. And now we're going to need, we're going to be looking towards the, uh, we're going to be looking for which part? Torah. Torah. Give me uh, Deuteronomy 18. Brent, tell me what verse this one is. Uh, Verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. The great passage about the second Moses, literally the the, the Messiah and in later Jewish thought, that second Moses figure. So, so Jesus or God quotes all three parts of his book. He quotes writings. This is my son. He quotes prophets whom I love and whom I delight. Uh, Listen to him from Deuteronomy, the books of Moses. So all three parts of the books are quoted. It's almost like God's not chastising Peter at all. It's almost like Peter's like, I get it, Jesus. This is like the Exodus. Let's build a tabernacle. And, And God like jumps in and joins in on the party and is like, yes, this is my son whom I love, whom I have chosen. In him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. Like, it's not a chastising. It's this coming alongside of this thing that Peter is doing. Uh, uh, That's how I have come to read it. Um, And I love that when God speaks, he quotes his own book. I just think that's fantastic. So this story makes a point of telling us that when Jesus is seen hanging out on the mountain with Moses and Elijah, by the way, uh, in case we need any more ties to the idea that this is a Sinai connection, if you read the gospel of Luke and you actually do a word study, Moses and Elijah talk to Jesus literally in the Greek about his exodus, which is a fantastic word to choose. Out of all the words they could have chosen to do that, Luke could have chosen. He chooses exodus. For anyone paying attention to my intro, I kind of gave that one away uh, yeah, a little we bit. Did. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. So um, this story makes a point of telling us that Jesus is seen hanging out on the mountain with Elijah, Eliyahu, and Moshe. What's interesting about that is there are lots of stories in the Midrash about Messiah and Elijah. 
There are lots of stories about Messiah and Moses being together. However, there are only two stories, Brent Billings, only two stories where all three are in the same place at the same time. One of those stories is the one we're reading right here in the New Testament Gospels. There's another story, a Midrash. Oh, I thought you were saying that this was considered a Midrash. Well, in my mind it is. Inspired authoritative Midrash. Sure. Christian Midrash, if you will. Followers of Jesus Midrash. Gospel accounts Midrash. But there's one other story that's not in our canon. It's in Jewish Midrash. It predates this story by about 80 years. So we know that it's at play when Jesus tells this story. Unlike the earlier tidbit when I said all three parts will testify about Messiah, that part people could argue about where that tradition lands and lies. But this one we know for a fact predates this story with Jesus. 80 years predates this story of Jesus. And this story goes on. It's actually a midrash that surrounds Psalm um, 43, which is actually Psalm 42 and 43 go together. So as we talk about Psalm 43 today, uh, if you have time, look at Psalm 42 as well, because the two go together just brilliantly. And it's this beautiful thing. I don't want to take the time to do that today. But Psalm 43 is what the Midrash is. And it says the following. Go ahead and start reading. Brent, I may or I may not stop you. Uh, and just a note, there is a footnote for Psalm 43 that says, you know, traditionally in many manuscripts, they're, they're a single psalm. Oh, really? So, yeah. Is that in the NIV? Uh-huh. Beautiful footnote, NIV. Well done. <laughs> I don't think that was in the old NIV. That's fantastic. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, Psalm 43, vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by my enemy, by the enemy, rather? Uh, send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Okay. So this psalm is, is the psalmist is crying out. Now, the Midrash is just trying to comment on the psalm. And the psalmist is crying out for vindication. He is oppressed. He is in trouble. And the psalmist is crying out for God's rescue, his deliverance, his vindication. And and so the psalmist in Psalm 43 prays for it. He says, God, send out your light and your truth. Now, the Midrash goes on to say, well, we know we know who the truth was, like the truth, who was, who was super passionate about the truth, Brent, like somebody in the Old Testament, what Old Testament character was like fiery chutzpah truth boy? Elijah, it seems like. Elijah. By the way, who was the one that gave us truth? Is this a trick question? <laughs> uh, not well, not the New Testament version, the Old Testament version. Who gave us truth? Well, I who? guess, I guess Moses giving Torah. Moses giving Torah. That's truth. Right? So in this Midrash, it says, well, we know who truth is. Truth is Moses. Truth is Elijah. These are the characters we're looking for in, in this Messianic age. We're looking for the second Moses, and we're looking for that coming of Elijah, right? So so when the psalmist cries out for truth, what the psalmist is really crying out for is this is this deliverance. This, But, but, the, but the, the psalmist also cries out for what, Brent? Not just truth, but uh, what is this? Send me your light and your faithful care. Oh, is that what it says in your translation? Yeah. Okay. So the word for faithfulness is truth. Okay. Matai there. So. And then it says, let them lead me. Okay. So asking for light, you read, right? Asking for light and for truth. 
And Moses and Elijah, we said, represented which part? The truth. The truth. So we also need the light. Well, we just, we read Isaiah. Isaiah will, will go on to say that Messiah, this Messiah character, the one whom I have chosen, the one in whom I delight, he will be a light. This servant will be a light to the nations. And so the Midrash of Psalm 43 says, you see, the light is Messiah and the truth is Moses and Elijah. It's the only Midrash outside of the New Testament Gospels that puts Messiah, Moses, and Elijah in the same Midrash. The Midrash goes on to say, when you are in trouble, when you need vindication and deliverance, pray for Moses, pray for Elijah, and pray for Messiah. Pray for light, pray for truth. Pray for Moses, pray for Elijah, and pray for Messiah, which is awesome because that's the characters. But listen to the rest of Psalm 43, brothers and sisters. Go ahead, Brent. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. Hold on. Let me let them bring me to my to your what? Holy mountain. Holy what was the what was the name of Mount Hermon? What did that mean? Holy mountain. Brother, bring me to your holy mountain. To the what? To the place where you dwell. Where you shakan. This psalm, which is the only other midrash with the three characters together, is a perfect psalm for the transfiguration story. Go ahead and finish it up. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why in my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. By the way, when Peter writes, just one more little nail in the coffin for Mount Hermon as the, as the proper location. When Peter writes later in his letters, First and Second Peter, I believe it's First Peter. Peter talks about how he was with James and John and Jesus on the holy mountain. I'm telling you, it's Mount Hermon. We, tradition got it wrong this time. It's not Mount Tibor. It's Mount Hermon. Personal opinion, but a pretty darn good one. So, the psalmist cries out for deliverance. He pleads for God to send him his truth and his light. Why is the psalmist asking for that? The Midrash teaches that God's truth is seen in Moses, the giver of Torah. The prophet Elijah, who had great passion for the truth. Who is the light? The Midrash quotes Isaiah 42, the same one God quoted, and says that Messiah is the light of God that is sent forth. So the Midrash concludes, when you are in trouble, pray for Moses, pray for Elijah, and pray for Messiah. The next line of the psalm says these figures will lead the psalmist to God's holy mountain, the place where he dwells. The word for dwell is the same root word for tabernacle. Maybe Peter didn't realize what he was saying. <laughs> like maybe Peter like knew the Exodus part. Maybe Peter didn't even realize how brilliant he was in light of the Midrash, or maybe he did, but holy cow, right? This is an amazing teaching buried in the story of the transfiguration. And while I still don't know exactly where to land the plane, um, like with this, like what do I, again, I started this by saying, what do you do with the story of the Mount of Transfiguration? Here's one hunch that I have. There are, this story appears in three Gospels almost always at the dead center. And yes, there are theories that say that at least one of the Gospels, if not more of them, are what, Brent, do you suppose? A chiasm. A chiasm. Now, if that's true in one of the Gospels, this is the defining moment. And it could be true in Matthew. I keep trying to pull all these threads together, like the stuff we've talked about with the Bible Project and the five books. Like I keep trying to make it all make sense on so many layers, and it makes my brain hurt so hard. But um, it could be. Now, one of the things that we see here is it's almost like 
on the first half of this chiasm, whether it's in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, on the first half, it's like Jesus is telling his disciples, kind of like the first half of Torah, like this is this is what the partnership's going to look like, guys. This is what we need to learn. Like Jesus has just gotten done teaching them like a pretty big lesson we've been saying, Brent, like I'm here for the Gentiles. We have to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Like it's all about teaching. And then at the end of the transfiguration, at this point, the tone's going to change in the Gospels. And Jesus now sets his sights resolutely in one gospel, resolutely on Jerusalem. So that the tone and the tempo and the direction of the gospel changes. Up to the transfiguration, it's been all about teaching, passing on, feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. I'm going to give you the law. You're going to give it to other people. And the last, after the transfiguration, it's going to become, okay, guys, it's time to live this out. I go to Jerusalem to die. Like, this is where Jesus starts talking about his death. Everything kind of changes and hinges here at the transfiguration. So what do I do with it? I still don't know. But I'm beginning to find more and more stuff here about the story that seems to bring it to light. No pun intended. Okay. Now, by the way, what kind of time we got, Brent? Yeah, we're doing okay. How about you? Can we jump back to Deuteronomy 5? Here's what I find so tasty about what we talked about with Peter's confession. And, we, and the first mention of living God showed up in Deuteronomy 5. Read me that, those two paragraphs again that we read before. Now that we've had the transfiguration story, and watch what happens. Listen to this. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud and the deep darkness. Wait a minute. The transfiguration was the same as what, what story? Uh, this one. This one. Okay, brilliant. Okay, awesome. <laughs> Uh, and he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me. And you said, The Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a person can live, even if God speaks with them. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer." For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire, as we have, and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you, we will listen and obey. Snap, that's exactly what God said was supposed to happen. Do you have the rest of it, Brent, in Deuteronomy 5? Give me the next paragraph. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Go, tell them to return to their tents, but you stay here with me, so that I may give you all the commands, decrees, and laws you are to teach them to follow in the land I am giving them to possess. Tell them to return to their tents. Interesting. Uh, I don't know. I, I could be crazy. It just feels like, wow. Like a, Oh my goodness, so much good stuff going on. But we got to finish chapter 17, Brent. So how about we jump back right. there? So many things we could talk about. Let's just keep moving, finish up the chapter, and go from there. This is one of the places, by the way, where we said every verse. I usually skip this part in all my previous versions of my body of work. So we're just going to bounce right on through this little section here because uh, it's not typically been a part of my teachings. All right. So the voice from the cloud says, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? 
Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Okay, so they get that much. So they have like these theological questions. They're like, okay, wait a minute. We're coming back down the mountain. Peter, James, and John. Like we get the theology, Jesus. We get that you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We just saw Elijah. We're trying to put all these questions. Like if you're going to go, like why do they say all this? And Jesus is like, no, it is. Like I think they still have this. Well, I know they still have from later, later on in the gospel. They still have an idea of this revolution, this zealot overthrowing of Rome. And Jesus is like, no, that's, that's not where this is headed. And they're asking questions about this. And, and Jesus is like, no, John, John was the elite. And they get that part. What they don't get is how this whole kingdom thing is still going to go down. So here's a question. Yes. So obviously the zealots were all about making this overthrow themselves. Yes. They were make, making it happen themselves. Correct. Do the other groups wish for it to happen? They just think that God is going to do it? Yes. And even more so the Pharisees, I would say the Essenes would fit into that too in a totally different category. You remember John the Baptist as an Essene. But the a lot of these disciples here are Pharisees and they absolutely think that God, they're not going to do it with their swords, but God is going to do it through the Messiah. So they've identified the Messiah. They've got that part. They may even not all be zealots, although at least a couple of them are. But there's a group of them that are going, okay, like I get it, you're Messiah, and I don't, I'm not packing heat here, but I believe that you're going to do this. And Jesus keeps trying to tell them, like, no, that's not what I'm doing. And that part they don't get, but they do, they are starting to get some pieces of their theology, like, oh, we do have the Elijah. It was John the Baptist. Okay, what they still don't get is the method and the way in which the kingdom is going to arrive. They're still, they're still missing that. They don't have that. Go ahead and keep reading. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus All right, here's replied. A, here's something I've wrestled with here. So if we have the Exodus story and they're up on Mount Sinai and they're now coming down Mount Sinai, what what did you say the next story was in Exodus before, Brent? Oh, uh, well, initially I said the golden calf. The golden calf. I have wondered if, because Jesus' statement is weird. Like, here's this demon boy, the disciples can't figure it out. And Jesus' response seems like a little harsh, right? This unbelieving and perverse generation. I'm like, what in the world? Like, man, Jesus came down the mountain in a bad mood. Like, he had a pretty good time with Moses and Elijah, and he's pretty, he's pretty sad to be back with the, the commoners, apparently. He's pretty, he's pretty angry here. He's pretty mean. His quote comes from the song of Moses in Deuteronomy, a, a wicked and perverse, crooked generation. That comes out of Deuteronomy, I believe, chapter 32, Song of Moses. Um, so that's where the quote is coming from. I have wondered, especially with the idea that the boy is thrown into the fire and the water, what did they do with the golden calf, Brent? Uh, they put it in fire, they burned melted it, in it fire. down, and put it in water, and made people drink it. See, I just want—I don't know. I'm not—I'm not making any huge conclusions here. I'm wrestling with that. As—is is there a remez here? Is this following the Sinai timeline? They come down, and Jesus is pretty upset about something. Is this have some connection? Is there an idolatry piece taking place here? Is this what the—is this what the disciples are wrestling with? They can't—they can't cast the demon out. Go ahead and keep reading. We'll see if we can. 
How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. See, I just wonder, and in another gospel, Jesus says, Well, this, this, these kind of demons only come out with prayer and fasting, which is hard enough to get our head around. It almost feels formulaic. And we have to resist the urge to be a Westerners and do that to that. But in another gospel, he says prayer and fasting. Like, that's what you need. You're trying to cast out the demon, but these demons only come out with prayer and fasting. Which, fasting is that idea connected with humility. Like, and in fact, if we want to, Brent, we can even, I, I did a sermon recently on fasting. Yes? We could link that in the show notes and people could hear if they're like, what? Fasting's about humility? What are you talking about? Like, we can, we can pull it up because fasting is all about posture. And I wonder if what Jesus is saying here is you can't cast out this demon because you're trying to use this demon, demon casting out stuff as like a, I don't want to say a party trick. That's far too trivial, but this is about your position in the kingdom. You're trying to do this with authority. You're not trying to do this out of humility. And I wonder if there's like, if this is connected to the golden calf, I wonder if there's an idolatry piece here. You're trying to do the wrong thing. You're trying to do it the wrong way. There's an idolatry of self. There's an idolatry of power. There's an idolatry of kingdom. And that's why you're not able to cast these demons out. What you need to do is have a servant's humility as you go about doing them. I don't know. Things I wrestle with. Hence why I don't do verse by verse through these stories. So let's keep moving. (laughs) Uh, let's see. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Pretty straightforward. He's still trying to get through to them. This is how this, this is the method. This is the way, this is what's going to happen. The disciples are just like, man, they don't get it. And we know from the end of the gospels, they don't get it all the way to the end until the very, very end resurrection time. Until that moment, they just are, are, they miss it. Go ahead. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. All right, so they get back to Capernaum, back in the triangle, right? And uh, they come to him and they're collecting the temple tax. Now, there's a lot of taxes in there, Dan. I don't know how much we've talked about this up to this point, but... uh, um, Jews in the first century world, uh, especially under Herod, um, Herod the Great and his sons, scholars estimate you were taxed somewhere between 70 and 80, 80 some even say as high as 85% of your income. Uh, Roman taxes took almost uh, 50%, 50 to 60%. And then you had your tithe, which isn't a tax, so I should be careful the kind of language I use there. Not a tax, we you had your tithe, you had your 10% on top of 50 or 60 from Rome, on top of another another ten percent, which Herod had leveled against you to build his great temple mount, that big box and that temple renovation that Herod was overseeing, that was all driven by a massive temple tax, two drachma. And so they come and they're like, "Hey, does your rabbi pay the tax?" <laughs> and I don't know what happens here, but Peter's just like, "Sure, he does. Of course, he does." And, and it almost. It doesn't say he goes in and asks Jesus, because Jesus is the first one to speak, we're going to be told in the next verse. Maybe they're back in the triangle. Peter's relaxed now. Yeah. He's like, okay, we're done with the decapolis. We're done with the pan worship. Okay, all right, we're, we're back home. Just like, oh, yeah, all right, cool. Yeah. We're feeling good yeah. now. And he's just made a commitment. 
Because the rabbi, we have talked about this, the rabbi's commitment, according to Jewish tradition, the only commitment stronger, the only bond stronger in the Jewish world between a parent and a child is between who, Brent? A rabbi and a Talmud. A rabbi and a disciple, right? So what that meant was, is when when a disciple actually begins to follow, comes under a rabbi to be an actual Talmud, um, that rabbi takes on the parents, like he takes on the support. He has to feed, he has to care for, he has to shelter, and he has to pay for things like taxes. Uh, the parents aren't doing that. The it's, the bond is stronger between, a, I picture the parents with a smirk on their face saying, well, the only bond stronger than the one I have with my child is the one that you have with him. So go ahead and pay his taxes for him. And And so Peter has just made, when he says, yeah, my rabbi pays it, he's just kind of put the bill on his rabbi there, right? So go ahead and and, uh, pick up where you left off. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. And I kind of picture this, like, Peter's like, he's got one foot in the door. (laughs) What do you think, Peter? (laughs) I heard you talking out through the window. What do you think, Simon? He asked, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes, from their own children or from others? All right. So Jesus' point is, is, is Herod supposed to be collecting a God tax? Like, like I understand the Romans collect taxes. That's how taxes work. But and I and I wonder if this is coming from Jesus's interpretation of Torah, because Torah says you're not allowed to do this to your Israelite brother. You're allowed to do it to a foreigner. Go figure. You're you're allowed to charge interest or taxes or however you want to look at that according to Torah. But you're not allowed to do it. And I think Jesus is saying Herod's tax is not, for lack of a better phrase, a biblical tax. It it goes against Torah. And I think he asked Peter that. And I think Peter goes, oh, so go ahead and pick up. Uh, so just as quickly as, as he responded to the, uh, the collectors <laughs> of the tax, Peter says, from others. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Here's another reason why I don't do verse by verse is I haven't figured out, and I'm sure this is, I just haven't run across it yet. So some listener write me an email. Tell me what the, what the rem is, is for that. There has to be a rem. That is such a weird thing. Oh, we need to pay taxes? Well, tell you what, Peter, go throw your line in out back. Grab the first fish you see and we'll have a four drachma coin. <laughs> like what? There has to be a rem as to that. Like, that's just so ridiculous. There has to be something in the text. Has to be in the text. I haven't nailed it down yet, but it's got to be. Now, here is one last closing thought so we can be done with this podcast today. I think this is one spot where we have evidence of the age of Peter and the age of the other disciples. Because Jesus says he's paying the tax for how many people? Himself and Peter. So two people. What about the other 11 disciples? Because is Jesus responsible for them? Yeah. And you only pay the tax. And I believe it's either my mind that's giving me this age or I I was not able to find it prior to the podcast. I tried to look it up and could not find it in a short period of time. But the age at which you paid your taxes, I believe, started at 18. It wasn't any younger than 18. It was either 18 or it was 21. I cannot remember which one it was. And obviously, those are very significant numbers in our own culture. So I can't remember if it's getting twisted in my brain. But that means that Peter is apparently, because Jesus is responsible for all of his disciples, but if there's only two, two taxes, that means all the other disciples are younger than the tax age. And Peter, good indication that Peter is older than the tax age. So Peter's definitely the oldest. We would expect that. He might be older than 18, potentially even 21 if I'm getting my number screwed up. 
But the other disciples are all younger than whatever that age is. And I think there's a great indication there about some people have really, that's such a mind blowing thing when you learn it for the first time, the age of the disciples, because we always show a bunch of 30, 40 year old men hanging out with Jesus, which is a just weird and culturally completely incorrect. So that's a brand new idea that a lot of people struggle to get used to. But this is one of those verses that gives us an indication that I think we're onto something there. That's all I got for you today, Brent. All right. Well, we, we packed in another, another bunch of stuff. So we're working to get to the end of session three. Let's do this. Hopefully the, uh, the minds of the listeners are reeling and they'll, they'll, uh, have some great thoughts and, yeah. and send them into us. Absolutely. You can find Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And, uh, don't forget about the Bama messenger newsletter. Go sign up for that. Hey, yeah. they stopped listening by now. We should say something really awesome. Uh, let's see. What's your middle name, Brent? <laughs> Uh, Charles. All right. Mine's Anthony. Is that good? I don't know. Is it good? I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> but now they know our middle names. And that that is why you listen all the way to the end of the podcast. I guess. Yeah, you could take take those middle names to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks for joining us on the Baymall Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.